women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who make it happen on and off the Princeton campus. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and my guest today is Asha Rangappa, class of 96. Asha is director of admissions and teaches national security law at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. She came here after three years as a special agent with the FBI, where she was one of the first Indian Americans to specialize in counterintelligence investigations. Asha has a law degree from Yale, she's clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals, and she's currently a legal and national security analyst for CNN. And if all that breadth of experience doesn't make you smile, I should also tell you that Asha is an active actor and comedian. So Asha, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for having me. Um, I can't help asking, we can can park all of the serious national security (laughs) stuff for just a minute. Which came first in your life, comedy or law and security? The comedy and acting, for sure. I, at Princeton, I was in the Triangle Club for uh-huh. all four years. I started a theater uh, group at Yale Law School called the Court Jesters. Mm-hmm. Um, I acted in a Shakespeare repertory theater after law school instead of taking the bar. Mm-hmm. I did eventually take the bar. Uh-huh. Uh, and then after a short break for, you know, while having kids, <laughs> um, I, I came back and I do community theater um, and also some improv comedy on the side. So I'm seriously curious, why do you keep it up? I mean, is, does it play a good role in your in your in your professional life, or does it keep you grounded? Does it keep you sane? It all of the above. It feeds my soul. I really like being in a creative space. I think, especially when you're a lawyer, it, it can get stifling at times, and having a creative outlet is really important. Um, but also, it is a it, it is helpful professionally. It uh, gives you presence. Improv, in particular, makes you think on your feet. Yeah. Uh, makes you a better listener, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so, you know, actually there are a lot of uh, bar associations that offer improv as a part of their continuing legal education, huh. interestingly enough. So, um, yeah, all of the above. And it's I found that it just enriches my life in a lot of ways. I, uh, I'm, I'm struck a, a lot frequently by late night comedy and how um, sometimes some of our best or at least more um, – uh, I don't want to just say incisive. I guess I want to say memorable political commentary comes through comedy. I wonder if mm-hmm. you if you've given any thought to w- w- what kind of a vehicle it is and how it's a different way into people's intellects. Well, it can get to the heart of the matter. It can take things that are very serious, and sometimes when you find an angle that you can laugh about, you just see it through a different light. Yeah. So, yeah, and. You know, I think it's also unifying, which is really important right now, especially. Now, that's really interesting. Yeah, okay. So, all right. Comedy aside, we've got some serious, very serious issues pending, and they're right in your space. Yes. Uh, Just to to repeat, you were a counterintelligence specialist for the FBI and now a specialist in national security law. So, um, in particular the uh, events um, of, uh, of Russian intervention in the American presidential election and, and, and beyond, quite frankly, uh, are very much uh, in your sights and you have a lot to say about them. I wonder if you could help us kind of clear some brush because it is a fast-moving mm-hmm. uh, topic and a lot of confusion. Uh, where do we stand right now? Is there uh, any doubt that there was Russian uh, uh, intervention in, in the election? Is, is there a sense in which this is a hoax, as the president has claimed? 
No. There is a consensus among all of the agencies in the intelligence community that Russia did interfere in the 2016 election. And I have to say that that in itself is extraordinary because our intelligence community is made up of many different agencies who are designed to disagree with each other. So they all agree on this. On top of that, we already have uh, at least two indictments that have named multiple GRU officers who are military intelligence officers, Russian nationals, and Russian... You being a... The Russian military intelligence okay, organization, mm-hmm. sorry, uh, Russian nationals and Russian companies that are linked to President Vladimir Putin mm-hmm. uh, for their interference, both in the hacking of the DNC server and for the dissemination of disinformation on social media. And those indictments are, they're called speaking indictments because they're quite... Uh, you know, lengthy. They they offer a lot more detail than what's necessary to substantiate the charges. And I believe that Mueller did that in mm-hmm. order for the public to be able to read them and understand exactly how Russia executed these operations. And when you say Mueller, of course, you mean Robert Mueller, the special counsel. That's right. And this is the other uh, part of your expertise. It's the legal side of it. Right. Um, so um, I'm struck also by how Although, of course, these investigations, and there really are multiple investigations, as you've pointed out many Mm -hmm. times, uh, of course, they're mired in politics. Um, A lot of people would be forgiven for thinking they're completely political. What really is at stake here? Going back to those indictments that I just mentioned, you know, the special counsel's investigation is primarily to determine what Russia did and how they did it. That's the focus of a counterintelligence investigation. It's to identify... Uh, foreign intelligence threats and to stop them. And to the extent that they solicited or utilized the help of people on the ground here in the United States, American citizens, it could cross over into criminal territory, things like conspiracy. But I think the the main goal here is to neutralize the threat. Say more about what that means in your mind. Neutralizing the threat means to basically render Russia's operations ineffective. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that is, in this case, to make it public, to bring public awareness, because, again, a lot of it was happening, for example, the disinformation, because people weren't understanding how they were being manipulated. So people can get savvier about how they're consuming these things. Um, But then also just to expose Russia and send a message that we know what you're up to. And this is is actually highly unusual. In counterintelligence cases, you typically don't let your adversary know what you know. Um, If anybody watches The Americans. Yes, of course. (laughs) You know, it's a chess game. And Mm -hmm. sometimes you're better off not letting them know so that you can monitor them and send double agents. You know, there's a lot of spy versus spy. So the fact that all this is being thrown out into the criminal arena is significant and it is really intended to send a message to Russia. Yeah, because... You know, this isn't like an a- attack on the World Trade Center or or any other kind of act of war. It's it's invisible to a lot of people. That's yeah? right. So, yeah. So what 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 were the motives? What were the goals um, uh, uh, of Russia when this was launched? And yes. let's say a little bit more about what this was. Yeah. So. What Russia did is something that is called active measures. Um, active measures are uh, basically an intelligence approach that Russia, that the Soviet Union used under the KGB going back to the Cold War and have been adapted under Putin. Mm-hmm. They can take different forms. Um, I would say in 2016, there were four different fronts. Uh Uh, One was hacking and intrusion, basically stealing information, weaponizing it against particular candidates. Um, Another is disinformation, basically Mm -hmm. 
distorting people's perceptions of candidates, um, sowing discord among Americans, getting them to fight against each other, uh, polarizing us. Uh, the third is campaign finance, um, which is to funnel uh, donations into campaigns using uh, straw men mm-hmm. and straw organizations. And the last is political influence. This is basically overt attempts to get people to become allies of Russia. Um, an example here would be the the woman that was arrested for being the spy hanging around the NRA and oh, right, making yeah. the rounds, if yeah. you will. So, you know, there's four different fronts. And basically what Russia does is they throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. Um, And for them, it's, you know, it's a win-win because uh, either they can succeed on these fronts or worst case scenario, people learn about it and then they become um, disillusioned with our electoral process. So what when you say succeed on these fronts, what would success look like from the Russian point of view? Uh, success would look like being able to hack in, get information, and being able to drop it at convenient times for them that achieves their objectives, um, whatever it may be. Um, it could be obtaining um, you know, sympathetic people within the United States government that might further their policy or goals, like lifting sanctions. Um, or it could be just getting us to implode internally wow. um, and losing faith in our courts, in our electoral process, in our law enforcement, um, and all of that. Because for them, uh, you know, weakening the United States is how they can become equal. Hmm. And do you think there was something about the 2016 election that um, made Russia think it was a particularly fruitful time? You say these these techniques, these tactics go back to the Soviet Union. Right. Um, actually, they had been perfecting these techniques internally um, in regions around uh, Russia, like the Ukraine. They had already been testing these out. So we were sort of coming later on in their use of these techniques, um, information warfare in particular, you know, after they had already tested it out on a number of people and learned that they can be very effective. You know, Russia cannot compete militarily, technologically, economically with most Western countries. But what they can do is get, is just to sow chaos, um, you know, bolster, far-right, nationalist, anti-immigration elements, which they're doing in Europe, um, to basically cause a lot of chaos internally. So it wasn't just the United States that was in the crosshairs. Uh, No. And I mean, if you'll remember, soon after our election, um, they went after France's election. mm -hmm, um, And, you know, actually, our election was a a lesson for France, and I think they handled it more effectively. And before our election was Brexit, mm-hmm. which it looks like uh, Russia was involved in as well. So we are by no means the only target of their operations. Interesting. Um, I was really struck by an article of yours that I read in the journal that you edit, which is called Just Security. Exactly. Uh, when you and a co-author posited a, a an alternative history, you know what you asked would would uh, this all look like right now? Had um, Donald Trump lost the election and Hillary Clinton won the election. I wonder if you can play some of that out for us. Uh, and for example, what, how, would, how would Russian objectives have been affected? 
Yes, and I it, this is really important, and we we lose first perspective on this because it is easy to say that because there's consensus that Russia interfered, and in some ways they were successful, that they had you know they were masterminds or had some magic eight ball that knew what was happening. Yeah. Um, on the contrary, you know they were looking at the same polls that we were, and I think that they believed that Hillary was going to win, and. Putin is not a big fan of Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of what they were laying the groundwork for was to be able to be uh, disruptive during her presidency, uh-huh. raising questions about her legitimacy. This was, you know, a lot of the language about the election being rigged, about even the Democratic National Convention being rigged, yeah. um, voter fraud. All of these things to, were would have been good for Russia. Um, Donald Trump is a great disruptor. Um, and frankly, he would have been a better disruptor for them in some ways on the side if he, say, had his own media network. Yeah, which, of course, going back to 2016, there was a lot of talk that That's he right. might do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he would have been able to say whatever he wants to say and, mm-hmm. and have a huge following. And also, you know, a lot of the charges that have been leveled against the FBI, for example, that they were biased or, you know, targeting Trump would have actually had more plausibility if he had lost. Huh. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there. I think it would have been actually, ironically, I think it would have been easier to discredit the FBI, which is, frankly, Russian intelligence's main nemesis in the United States, had Hillary won. Um, you know, we should also remember that had she won, there probably would be no special counsel. Um, I think that the investigation into Donald Trump would be less of a urgent priority because it wouldn't be as much of a national security threat without him sitting in the Oval Office. So there are a lot of ways that, frankly, this could have turned out better for everyone, except in some ways for Hillary Clinton, who probably would have been under investigation, you know, or congressional investigation every day of the week. The idea of this alternate history does bring up so many questions. I mean, among them, in my mind, how would the uh, FBI investigation how would the legitimacy of the FBI have been um, improved or or diminished? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, what would have happened if Hillary had won, every time the FBI would have tried to come forward with evidence of Russian interference, it would have been weaponized to say, to just be as proof that they were trying to go after Trump. I see. Whereas now, every, with every indictment that the special counsel brings down, they're vindicated. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I just think that it would have, you know, there there would have been more questions and more doubt around a Hillary Clinton win because of the FBI investigation um, than there is now. So, I mean, this isn't just um, an interesting hypothetical because, uh, Sooner or later, either in 2020 or 2022, if, if not before, Donald Trump will leave office um, <laughs> and he will be on the outside of of the White House. And um, God forbid this uh, investigation is ongoing still. But I am wondering the course of, 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 of the investigation and all of the optics around it. I'm wondering if uh, institutions such as the FBI will have taken a long-term hit. I mean, will people trust any outcome um, from an FBI investigation after all of the dust that's been thrown in the air? Well, I think that's one of the, you know, tragedies of, of what's been going on. Um, I think I think they will be have their legitimacy intact. I think it, they'll have to build it back up because it 
you know, when the president of the United States is constantly undermining our law enforcement institutions, even our courts, our media, it does, I think, take a toll on the, um, you know, the psyche of the American yeah. public. Um, but let's not forget that the FBI is not a perfect agency. It has had its checkered past and yeah. its down moments back in the 70s. It, um, you know, was under great scrutiny for doing, you know, for, in fact, I think, violating a lot of civil liberties. And they have spent a lot of time rehabilitating that. And I think in this case, I actually think they are doing things by the book. So um, when the sunlight you know, when, when there is sunlight put on the investigation, I think that they will be vindicated. That's that's um, that's helpful to, to, to hear and, and encouraging to think. So they have a playbook in a sense as to Well, building. precisely because of what happened in the 70s and the church hearings, um, there are quite a lot of internal parameters and oversight mechanisms that the FBI knows. I mean, you know, when you're an FBI agent, you are told – Anything you put down on paper, you better expect that they there will be a congressional committee at some point looking at it, and it could end up on the front page of the New York Times. So that is how they approach their work. Yeah, and um, you know, and I think as a result, they with a with a case of this magnitude, especially, I don't think they would take any chances. Uh, what were the church hearings? The church hearings happened in the late seventies, and they exposed a lot of. Um, the operations that were happening under Hoover, uh, which, you know, were essentially operations, surveillance operations targeted against civil rights leaders, uh, you know, Vietnam War protesters, um, the KKK, you know, a lot of um, trying to do things under the the pretext or perhaps what he believed was a serious threat of communism. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in effect, we're violating the civil liberties of, of these groups. So uh, these all came to light. And as a result, this is why we have, for example, FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance mm-hmm. Act, because mm-hmm. there was there was nothing in place before that. Mm-hmm. Um, these put in place statutory um, and congressional oversight mechanisms. Okay. Another thing I think that's right up your street as a specialist in national security law is uh, the issue of pardons. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the president quite notoriously or famously has, has um, uh, said that he has an absolute right to pardon himself. And I guess first I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yes. Um, well, I think that the president has quite a broad latitude to pardon. The pardon power is one of the few royal prerogatives that were imported into our constitution that is otherwise generally anti-monarchical. And so, you know, there are few qualifications uh, on his ability to pardon, but I don't think it includes the power to pardon himself. Mm -hmm. And that's because even the king's power to pardon, let's remember, came from, uh, you know, the ecclesiastical tradition. And if you think about it, um, priests can't give themselves confession. <laughs> this is about absolving uh-huh. someone of guilt. And the idea of granting mercy and receiving mercy involves two people. You need the grantor and the grantee. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a guilty mind cannot uh, exonerate itself. Uh-huh. And okay. so I think that that is beyond the pale. But I think... You know, he could definitely pardon his family members. He mm-hmm. can pardon his friends. He can pardon anybody he wants for a federal crime. Mm-hmm. And he has a lot of latitude to do that. And 
Are there any downsides to his, from, from a, the point of view of, of President Trump, are there any downsides to the pardoning strategy, to the pardoning option? You know, there is some debate among legal scholars over whether pardoning could amount to obstruction. Um, I think that that would be a very hard argument to make because he has, um, in a way, the pardon power is by nature obstructy, if you will. It mm -hmm. is undoing yeah. um, a, you know, a judicial decision of some kind. So I don't think that that would hold water, but that is something that's debated. I think it's important to remember that with Trump, we are often in uncharted legal territory and yeah. constitutional territory. So, you know, it's it's a field day for scholars, <laughs> <laughs> not such a great day for a lot of other Americans. And, you know, so many things have entered the discourse of, of ordinary people now that would have been unthinkable even a few years ago. I mean, we're talking about uh, the the problems with the Electoral College. We're talking about the problems with the, um, the, the, the demographic shifts to the coasts and whether the number of uh, Senate votes in the center is, is, is makes sense anymore and, and all of these sorts of things. Uh, do you think those will pass as as this crisis, as it were, or this moment passes? It might. I mean, I think it's really rejuvenated civic engagement and an interest in, you know, government and how, you know, and civics generally, right? Like, I mean, yeah. people are, like you said, ordinary people are talking about separation of powers and checks and balances. And, um, and statehood, you know, Washington, D.C. Exactly. is not a state. Puerto Rico is not a state. Right. They're paying attention. Um, you know, I think my Twitter followers at this point could probably all get an honorary law degree. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all very, you know, they ask really thoughtful questions. Um, so in that way, it's been ironically, uh, you know, in in many ways, a rejuvenation. I mean, even the protests that you see, all of these are forms of civic engagement. And in fact, one of the ca classes that I'm teaching this semester is on Russian intelligence and information warfare and social media. But we discuss Robert Putnam, who wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Uh -huh, yes, and of um, this is about how we build social capital. Yeah. And, um, you know, he talks about the decline in social capital, you know, basically connections between people because people don't participate in these civic institutions anymore. And they're not really writing letters to their congressmen and all these stuff, and especially with the younger generation. And we saw that with the low voter turnout for the youngest generation. So in some ways, this could be a needed uh, jolt yeah. to our, you know, our sense of civic responsibility. Certainly war in previous generations yes. brought in the younger mm -hmm. generation into the political system. Watergate brought people into the political system. Vietnam brought people into the political system. Mm -hmm. The millennials and younger are, are coming in in spades, I think, now for the first time. To your own career, then, it's kind of um, intriguing to me. Uh, that you've moved around so much from uh, from what you originally thought you were going to be doing. Mm -hmm. I think you you've said that you originally thought you would start off uh, as a as a lawyer and maybe as a prosecutor, mm -hmm. but life took you personally in a different direction. Um, what happened? I mean, was it just um, follow your nose? No, well, you know, I think it's it was think outside the box and be flexible and take advantage of opportunities. So yeah, I wanted to be a prosecutor. That's why I went to law school. Um, that was what I hoped to do. It was just that in law school, I discovered that typically to become an uh, AUSA, a federal prosecutor, you went and worked for a law firm for a few years. And then, you know, you eventually went to work for uh, the district, the 
uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, I um, didn't want to work for a law firm. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I'll apply to the FBI. I'll kick down doors for a few years. It makes total (laughs) sense to me. Um, So I applied, and actually they weren't hiring at the time. This was 1999. So I went on with my life. I went to my clerkship, and then 9-11 happened. Mm. And it turned out that because of my language skills, I got pushed to the top of the pile right after Mm -hmm. 9-11, got expedited, got put in, went into counterintelligence, uh, which was not kicking down doors. It was catching spies, which are mainly diplomats. Um, You don't want to kick down their doors. You get better Uh, (laughs) clothes. (laughs) That's right. Um, And so, you know, that – and then, you know – family ta- like demands, um, you know, having a- children. Um, I moved into academia and went back to Yale Law School to become an associate dean um, and then got into teaching, which is not what I thought I would do either. Yeah. Um, and then the TV stuff kind of fell in my lap. Uh, I sort of have Donald Trump to thank for that, yeah, actually, yeah. because of all the questions that he raises. So Yet another silver lining. Exactly. <laughs> um, probably, uh, you know, my career at the expense of America. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, I just found that you can't plan for everything and things come up and take you in directions that you might not have imagined. Well, I'm quite intrigued by um, careers that move back and forth between a thoughtful, contemplative, academic approach to a subject and, you know, getting in there, in, in your case, kicking down doors or, or working in, in court. The, the swing back and forth between the active and the, and the thoughtful. You thought you were going to be right in there as a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you have a, a perspective now on the value of moving back and forth. Well, you know, I have to say that going back to the idea of civic engagement, I think government service is so important. And Mm -hmm. I think even if you do it for a few years, it gives you a really great perspective on how things work on the ground. I, you know, I was only in the FBI for a short time, but being in law enforcement, understanding how the training works, seeing how you have to deal with things from an investigatory perspective, the rules that you have to follow. um, You know, most people that are talking about this in the theory or scholar, you know, they don't have that perspective. And yeah. so it's a great way. It, it gives you a new angle into yeah. these things. Um, and also a, appreciation for what, you know, we, we talk about the government as though it's like this, you know, single monolithic thing. And it's not. It's comprised of hundreds and thousands of men and women who are there just to do their job. Um, and I think that understanding that gives you um, a, a great appreciation for what goes into the job every day. Yeah, and it gives you, I think, um, flexibility too, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I, I don't want to presuppose that this is the last step in your career because it's <laughs> been a career of so many steps. I imagine there will be I others. I hope not, yeah. <laughs> Um, one last thought. Uh, mm-hmm. Any advice for young students just coming out of college today about um, exactly this, about charting a future or letting their instincts go? Yeah. Um, and what I always tell people is, number one, to take risks. I take big risks. Interesting. Um, you know, you can't sometimes I find that they want all the answers and everything guaranteed. And nothing's guaranteed, but yeah. you're also not going to, you know, you don't gain anything by uh, risking without risking anything, um, to be flexible, um, keep your antenna up for new opportunities, um, and you know just to be curious about other people in the world. What was the best risk you took in your life? I have to go back to risk because <laughs> I, it's a fascinating topic. Well, definitely the FBI, mm-hmm. um, and that was the hardest 
you know, it was just a new world. I failed my PT test the first day. PT like, is? Physical training. Mm-hmm. I mean, I showed up on the first day and just failed it spectacular. It's the first time I've failed anything in my life. <laughs> um, you know, and be you know, being put into a new element that you just have never been in before really can transform you. And, you know, having to overcome that and decide that I was going to stick it through without knowing if I would succeed and putting in the work and uh, being measured against criteria that I had never been measured against um, really changed my own like sense of what I was capable of. Yes. Well, with that, <laughs> can I say thank you very much for giving us your time? Yes, thank you. This was great. Great. I also want to thank our producer, Danielle Alio, and I'd like to thank Yale University for lending us their audio facilities. To our audience, thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon with more insights and reflections from the change-making women who come through Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications, with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.